Welcome to the documentary on one. This is a mystery about a missing body. The Lost Millionaire. It's told by Mark McMenamin. Growing up in Donegal, I always knew that Glenvay Castle was a pretty special place. It sits in a remote valley on the edge of a long lake, surrounded by high mountains. It has a look of mystical tales to it. But it's only in recent years that I've realised that there is a very modern-day tale associated with the castle. It involves millions of dollars, sexual bullying, a mysterious tragedy, and one woman's amazing loyalty to her husband. Part of the story made the front page of the New York Times, and research into the mystery has been published by an Irish author. But so far, no one really knows if what happened was a crime, a misfortune, or a fake. Let's begin in a nearby village. It's 87 years ago. September 1933. And there's an inquest taking place. I am widow of Professor Kingsley Porter. More than any other inquest at the time, this one's unusual. He was aged 50 years. The coroner is a local doctor and he's hearing the evidence of the main witness. He was always in good health. She's 57 years of age, short in stature, broad-featured. She's described as plump. And was a professor of fine arts at Harvard University. She's American, a photographer, an expert in medieval art. And she's easily the richest person in the room, if not the whole area. She's a millionaire who lives nearby, named Lucy Kingsley Porter. And reside at Glenvay Castle, County Donegal, and Elmwood, Cambridge, Massachusetts, USA. But the fact that she's an American and she's wealthy is not why this inquest is so unusual. The reason it's so special is that this is an inquest without a body. Probably the first of its kind in Ireland, according to the coroner. Mr. Porter was in his usual health on the day of his disappearance. There are plenty of rumours, and some of these have made it into the papers. But so far, the coroner can only rely on the evidence of Lucy and a local man who were the last to see Arthur alive. And Mr. Porter had no troubles, financial or otherwise. During cross-examination, Lucy was asked about her marriage to Arthur. Lucy decided that an inquest into her husband's death was not the place to tell the truth about their relationship. So she lied. Our married life was a happy one. Lucy was married 21 years previously in her home in New York City. New York Times, June 1st, 1912. Today's weddings. The wedding of Miss Lucy Bryant-Wallace and Arthur Kingsley Porter will take place this afternoon at the Wallace Residence, 346 West 71st Street. In 1912, Lucy was 36 years of age and her new groom was 29. They were an ideal match, certainly intellectually. They were both college educated. Lucy studied art history and literature. Arthur studied art history. You know, what I had heard is he was a very focused guy. 
This is Arthur's great-great-nephew, Scott Arneal. Not incredibly extroverted, necessarily, but very much a gentleman with great poise and intellect and drive. That was the groom, Arthur Kingsley Porter. What about the bride? What was she like? Lucy Bryant-Wallace was an heiress from Massachusetts. This is Wexford woman Lucy Costigan, who's written about the Kingsley Porters, Arthur and Lucy. There was a lot of differences between them. Lucy was seven years older than Kingsley, and also her personality was much more sociable and outgoing. Arthur was one of America's most eligible bachelors, sensitive, handsome and wealthy. But he showed no real interest in women until he met Lucy. He finally found his life partner with her because they shared a great love of art and architecture. You're all very welcome to Glen Vey. The castle was first built in the 1870s and... Lucy Costigan wrote her book on the Kingsley Porters after she went on a visit to Glen Vey and heard some of their story. This is the only room that looks the way that the Kingsley Porters would have had it. The, the book is called Glen Vey Mystery and for it she researched their papers including letters they wrote to each other. Darling, I adore them. Their very fragrance takes me back. For example, it contains a letter Lucy wrote to Arthur after he sent her a bouquet of roses. How they excited me by breathing to me in their mysterious way that you were interested in me. I am dippy at the thought, darling. And although Arthur was described as shy and sensitive, he was able to reply in kind on paper. I shall not have one moment of happiness until I see you again. I want only you. Nothing else counts. Did you enjoy the trip out with your good friend? How I wish you might have been talking to me instead. I love you more than the seven worlds or the nine heavens. I only live because of you. That was a time in Arthur's life when love letters were a source of intimate pleasure. But when he was younger, when he was a child, love letters were a source of very public pain for him. It all began when Arthur was eight. Up until then, life was good for him. As his closest living relative, Scott Arneal says Arthur's family was very wealthy. His father was a banker and his mother an heiress. They wanted for nothing in terms of education and it was a privileged childhood. And it was a very close family. The writer, Lucy Costigan. And really, they were all very happy until the mother, Louisa, died. And uh, Kingsley Porter at that stage was only eight years of age. And everyone expected the father then, who had become an invalid, to just sink gracefully into old age. But that actually wasn't what happened. What actually happened was he started to pursue a number of um, school teachers young women and uh, started to spend a lot of the uh, estate money on these women, uh, one of them being Kingsley's governess. And his own family then became really livid because of this. To add to Arthur's distress, his older brothers became so alarmed at their father's behaviour that they had him placed under house arrest. They took him to court, claiming that he had become unfit to manage the family finances. They were worried that his love life was going to fritter away their inheritances. You know, we're a romantic lot, (laughs) but uh, his father ran into some troubles writing love letters. Those troubles were in the court case taken by his sons, when Arthur's father's love letters to various young women were read out. 
And, of course, these ended up in the papers across America. Kingsley Portery was only about 12 at this stage and he was going to a public school and um, it must have been really very difficult for him to cope with all of this. And as a result of that, he did become very shy and withdrawn. And that was a feature of his personality all through his life. Arthur's father died when he was 18 and he inherited millions. He was tall, he was handsome, he was very well educated. People were surprised that he had no interest really in marrying and they just put it down to the fact that he was very shy and withdrawn. There were a lot of lawyers in the family and Arthur planned to study law. But on one occasion he was touring around France when he had an experience that moved him. Arthur's great-great-nephew Scott says this trip to France changed the direction of Arthur's life. It was the trip he took to uh, Coutance Cathedral that really just ignited this passion in him. And he had a mystical experience there when he looked up at the cathedral. And he really felt he wanted to study architecture from that moment. He went to Europe every summer to research in Italy and France, the Romanesque architecture. The thing that impressed me about him is the works that he produced at such a young age especially. It's something that certainly brings me pride. One of those works, for example, was his book on Spanish Romanesque architecture, which contained this dedication. The foregoing book is published under the name of A. Kingsley Porter, but anything in it which may be of value could not have been without Lucy Porter. After Lucy and Arthur Kingsley Porter married in 1912, she accompanied her husband on his trips to Europe. And they began researching medieval architecture. She took photographs of the various sites they visited, which he used in lectures and books. Those visits stopped when World War I began in 1914, but they resumed just before the end of the war in August 1918, when the Kingsley Porters travelled to France. Kingsley accepted an appointment from the French government. This was to assess damage to churches and monuments in war-ravaged districts in France, and uh, Lucy Porter travelled with him. In the autumn of 1921, Kingsley was offered the position of Professor of Fine Arts at Harvard University in Massachusetts. Lucy and Kingsley bought a colonial mansion near the university. And it was there then that they began to have soirees and to entertain illustrious friends from this elite Harvard group. Arthur and Lucy had no children. Throughout the 1920s, they settled into a routine. For some of the year, they would live in Massachusetts. He would lecture at Harvard. She would run the home and the social side of their lives. For the rest of the year, they would travel to Europe, sightseeing and researching their various interests. And then at one point, they were introduced to Irish antiquities and they came to visit. They found themselves in Donegal, where they fell in love with the landscape. Lucy wrote about the impact of Donegal on her husband. His thought was constantly returning to Ireland. The more he knew of its art, its ancient language and its literature, the more the land possessed him. 
While visiting Donegal in 1929, the Kingsley Porters discovered that the castle and estate at Glenvay were for sale. The estate is huge, 170 square kilometres. Another outcome of the spell of that land was the purchase of Glenvay Castle. Alone in the wilds of Donegal, it stands on a mountain-girthed lake. Hello, Sean. How's it for? How are you? Sean O'Gaheen is head gardener and unofficial historian of the castle. Kingsley Porter, so he's got a dicky bow on. He's showing me a black and white photograph of Kingsley, which hangs in the entrance hall there. This is probably, probably in his 40s. He looks quite serious and... What else could you say about him? High forehead, short cropped hair. He, he looks the real academic type, I think. But his attitude to Donegal was far from academic, as Kingsley wrote to his brother back in America. It is situated in the most wild and lonely part of the North Coast, in what I imagine is one of the most desolate but also beautiful landscapes of Europe. Another thing which attracted the Kingsley Porters to Glenvay is that it's near the birthplace of the Irish saint Colum Killa. So I'm reading from Colum Kill's coracle, just the rest of that page? This is Kingsley Porter's great-great-nephew, Scott Arneil. Okay. Reading part of a poem written by Kingsley. Colum Kill's coracle, there at the shore, will carry him soon, or we'll see him no more. He'll be gone, he'll be gone, and the morrow's dawn will find him wandering, lonely and lorn. And the boat will spread its wings of white and grow smaller and smaller and drop from sight. The tides will rise and the tides will slack, but Column Kill will never come back. I think he was also even getting Irish classes from Douglas Hyde, who was the first president. So he was really interested, you know, in this whole business of the Celtic revival. Sean O'Gaheen, head gardener in Glenvay Castle, Donegal. In the 1930s, while he was actually in Glenvay, resident here, he produced these lectures for the Museum of Modern Art in New York about the crosses and culture of Ireland. So he was really the first person academically to draw serious attention to the cultural heritage of Ireland in the High Crosses. I think he kind of gave up on America and pinned his colours to the Irish mast. That focus on Ireland showed itself in various ways. For example, Kingsley took his knowledge of Irish High Crosses and published a book about them. He also joined the Antiquaries Society in Dublin and lectured there. In Donegal, the Kingsley Porter spent money on fencing the Glenvay estate and came to an agreement with the Land Commission to hand over some of the land to local people. They also opened the castle grounds to charitable fundraising events. Fermanagh Herald, August 29, 1931. Big gathering at Glenvay. Beautiful Glenvay and its charming surroundings looking their best in the sunlight. Some of the visitors wended their way up the hills at the back of the castle to see the deer, and others proceeded along the far avenue to get a view of the lovely lake. Everything possible to make the day success was done by Mr. and Mrs. Kingsley Porter. For the first couple of years of the 1930s, the Kingsley Porters spent their summers in Donegal and the rest of the year in the States, where Kingsley lectured in Harvard and Lucy ran their home and social life. He was in his late 40s, she was in her mid-50s. 
Whether in Donegal or America, Lucy and Kingsley's personalities remained the same. She was sociable, he was shy and withdrawn. One of their guests wrote about Kingsley. He is a charming man, but not at all stimulating. He seems lost in a dream, and I do not want to disturb him. While another wrote about Lucy. Lucy Porter is small, vivacious, keen, kindly, busy. While Lucy entertained these guests, Kingsley often studied in his library or went hill walking. Michael Daly, I am a former editor of the Donegal Democrat. How do you imagine in that rural Irish-speaking part that the locals just... How would you think they might have reacted to this millionaire coming in? Well, I know how they reacted to him. They liked him. I've read that. Kingsley Porter was good to the people that worked for him and worked with him. He employed all local carpenters for the work he got done in Glen Vey. And apart from that, it's not because he was putting the shilling in their pocket, but the local word on him was that he was a good guy and he was very, very popular. It wasn't hard for Kingsley to be liked as the new landlord. The previous one was hated. He was another American millionaire named John Charles Adair, who didn't really want any people on his 40,000 acres and evicted hundreds of tenants. Because of that, it's said locally that Glenvay Castle was cursed, something Lucy could easily believe given the events of years to come. Compared to Adair, Kingsley Porter was a benign landlord, but he still thought of Ireland romantically and didn't like the idea of the lives of Irish peasants improving. De Valera, with his ideal of universal poverty, has, I think if anything, widened the difference between Ireland and the modern world, so that now that traditional air of rundown shiftlessness, general mismanagement, misgovernment that's always given Ireland its charm is even accentuated. The various attempts to re-establish new industries, open new communications, have to my great relief almost universally failed, and the country seems to be slipping back into a state of restless dreaming. That dreamlike place suited the Kingsley Porters, away from the stresses of late 1920s, early 1930s America. You can see where they like Glenvay Castle. It's spectacular and remote. A different kind of remote is Inish Bofinia, or Inish Baffin, the island of the white cow. It's in the Donegal Gaeltacht, about 30 kilometres north of Glen Bay. It's just 10 minutes off the coast. The Kingsley Porters bought land on Inish Bofinia. And you see them blue hills in the distance, yeah. um, far, far away. That'll be any showing. Here they could sample island life, and Kingsley even helped to build a curragh. The colours are amazing, particularly after when it rains. The colours that come out of the land. I'm on the island, and with me is Joseph O'Kellig, a local school teacher and historian. It's a, it's an orchestra of colours in your eyes every day living here. It's just absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm looking for Arthur Kingsley Porter's house. How do I find it? I was going to say Arthur Kingsley Porter, you'll have a look. <laughs> One of the islanders, Margaret O'Brien. <laughs> the ruins is over the beach, the back end of the beach. Tiffatoot! Oh. It's a bullock with you, Gadi. It's a tartan top. 
Ah, it's just huge here, Paul. Tell me, what's your documentary? Oh, yeah, don't worry. The quote to a Kingsley Porter. I'm going to go to Kingsley Porter. I'm going to go to Kingsley Porter. Even my mother, I don't think my mother vaguely remembers. 1932, 33, he was here. She would be about seven or eight. But he was good to the island people, like. He paid about two pounds or something to each house that time to be able to walk freely through the island. So that was a lot of money to them. Like, he was good to them, and they were good to him. A very lovely man, a beautiful man. Michael McGee, known locally as Mickey Whiting, is a native of Inish Boffin. He says the people of the island regarded Lucy and Arthur differently. The wife, um, she was a very sharp. The people of the island didn't like her at all, but they liked him very much. She was a very down-to-earth and he used to be over with the children, mining cattle in the back of the island. Them days she would join them, you know. And he would see in a pool of water lying on the ground. He would bend down and drink drinking water out of They would tell him it's the sheep about. And he says, don't be silly like that, talking out in Africa. Wouldn't they be loved to see such a, you know, pool of water, you know. That's the kind of man he was. He wanted to be back to, you know, uh, down to earth. And where we're walking here, this is the populated part of the island. But we're actually walking to the far side of the island, which has only two houses. One of them was Kingsley Porter's. So uh, Kingsley Porter, he was a prolific writer and he wrote a number of plays. And in one particular play called Pope Joan, he wrote about his love of islands. And it really kind of strikes me now when we're on the island and we're, we're, we're looking out to the sea and, and, and looking at the vista that Kingsley Porter would have looked at. And he writes, We who live inland know nothing of islands. We never know what the sea is like with its spaces, its storms, its sadness, its exultation. We have never felt the wild wind sweeping unbroken from the rim of the world. We know nothing of islands. It is in islands that there is magic. It is in islands one breathes fresh air, salt air, Heavy-footed dwellers on the mainland never know joy. It is the island dweller whose heart leaps and sings. The Kingsley Porters paid for a simple thatched cottage to be built for themselves on the far side of Inish Bofinia. Well, where I'm standing right now, it's, it's very unusual indeed. Like The view looking out over this little private beach that he had to himself, and I'm standing inside here, which would have been like the only room in the house, just dry stone walls all around me. Um, and a very, very, very small space indeed. What would be the width and length, do you reckon? Six, six to twelve, eighteen foot by ten, yeah, would be. At most, um, yeah. And no running water, no lavatory or anything like that. What's important maybe is as a man that, that studied stone, particularly stone, uh, you wonder what he thought when he wanted this built and the way the stones are laid out and how it was built. Obviously, it's, he could have built a more modern house with the materials that are available at the time and he could have afforded to bring it onto the island. He would have had that means, but yet he didn't. And what he has here is very simple, simple. And I just wonder, as, as a man that studied stone all his life and photographed stone all his life, he obviously was happy here. The Kingsley Porters seemed to find some ease in Donegal. However, they weren't just getting away from it all in the US, they were getting away from one particular problem. Kingsley suffered from depression. 
In a letter to his brother, he wrote about living in a remote part of Ireland. I'm hoping it may give me a chance to gain a certain peace of mind, which I feel I have rather lost lately in the archaeological scramble. And he put his depression down to one reason above all. He was married, you know, but he had no interest in his wife at all. He was gay. Then he went to a psychiatrist in England and he went over to deal with him and he told him his position, you know. The psychiatrist Mickey was talking about was a London doctor working in a relatively new speciality. He was an eminent British sexologist. According to the author Lucy Costigan, this sexologist came up with a radical solution to help Kingsley with his depression. And that was to introduce a 20-year-old homosexual called Alan Campbell into the marriage. And Lucy Porter actually gave her consent to this bizarre experiment. What do you think made her kind of go along? Was it just the husband's happiness or...? I mean, psychology was very experimental at the time. And this whole idea of a sexologist was very new. I mean, we're looking at Freud and, you know, these um, Carl Jung and these people at the time. I mean, nobody really knew how the mind worked. And I think that Lucy Porter looked on that it was almost like handing over responsibility to the doctor and uh, no matter what he came up with then, it was kind of more easy to go along with that. I think Lucy was doing her best to support him. Sean O'Gaheen, unofficial historian of Glenvay. Like, I, I took myself to the British Library in London and asked to see the Kingsley Porter file. And what I found were correspondences basically reporting on the relationship that existed between this older man and this younger man. And the arrangement was that officially he was regarded as a secretary, as, as help for Kingsley Porter and his papers and his paperwork. But there was a relationship going on between the two of them. And it worked. Kingsley was in much better form. Since returning from Europe until a few days ago, there was an unqualified happiness. I've never done such good teaching and people have seemed to like me as they have never done before. All traces of depression disappeared, and my face altered completely. But this experiment of the Kingsley Porters having a third party in their marriage, that only worked once Kingsley's young lover was around. He was American, and his name was Alan Campbell. Alan Campbell has been with us now nearly a month, which has been one of intense happiness for me. And what is more marvellous and important, I do not think Lucy has been entirely unhappy. That wasn't true according to his wife's private writings, which have been seen by the author Lucy Costigan. Lucy really struggled to deal with this incredible situation where basically her husband was sleeping with Alan Campbell in Glenvay Castle. It's crazy. Like, how did it impact upon her? Like, how did she...? Well, Lucy kept a, a diary all of her life. July 25th, 1932. Alan arrives. I read in bed. August 26th. Inish Boffin for us tonight. August 27th. Returned to meet Alan. When Alan Campbell was staying in Glenvay Castle, the word that you would see in her diary is alone. So obviously she was sleeping alone that night. August 28th. Again, the feeling solitude brings perhaps for the fifth or sixth time in my life. 
Things connected back to childhood and girlhood. The experiment continued with Alan occasionally staying with the Kingsley Porters in their mansion near Harvard University. He had no romantic interest in Kingsley. He was instead in love with another man. This didn't stop Kingsley spending as much time as he could with Alan. These are some of Lucy's diary entries for early 1933. Monday, February 20th. Evening. Alone. Tuesday evening. Alone. Thursday, all day. Alone. Whatever about the experiment with Alan Campbell working in remote 1930s Ireland, back in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it was remarked upon. The shadow which has arisen is that it has been reported to me people are talking about Alan. Not for anything he has done, but the boy, of course, always wears his nature on his sleeve, which indeed is one of the most valuable things about him. By all accounts, Alan Campbell was quite effeminate and uh, it was just noted the amount of time he spent with Kingsley and maybe even their body language or the way they looked at each other. Kingsley, as you know, was lecturing at Harvard University and at that time, in the early 1930s, Harvard was conducting a witch hunt against gay men prompted by the president of that time, a man named Lowell. And then in May 1933, Porter's association with Alan Campbell caught the attention of President Lowell himself. The author Lucy Costigan says Harvard's campaign against gay men in the 20s and 30s was sinister and dangerous. There was actually secret courts being held which were trying to root out homosexuals at the time. A lot of students and professors who were homosexual were very in fear of these courts because, they, you know, it would basically destroy their careers and destroy their lives. And more than most, Kingsley knew the power of scandal to destroy lives. After all, his childhood had been blighted by the scandal of his father's behaviour after his mother's death. So he certainly feared Harvard's secret courts. Ryan Weiss is a free speech advocate in the States. They called themselves the court, capital T, capital C, somewhat underscoring what they saw as its solemn importance, I guess. And they took it upon themselves to interview people who were suspected of being gay men, use information they had got from other men they interviewed to try and extract more information, and basically just kind of go down the chain the way that a police investigator might track down leads. Um, interviewing them about what was your sexual activity like, do you masturbate, things like that. And also, who are the gay men you know at Harvard? Where are they convening? And Harvard eventually got a fairly long list of students and also men outside of Harvard from the greater Boston community. There was a number of students at the time who actually killed themselves because they were hauled up in front of these secret courts and the porters were aware of this. So President Lowell oversaw the entire process. He wasn't doing any of the questioning, but all of the findings were reported directly to Lowell. He was instrumental in choosing the punishments for them. Kingsley Porter was called into President Lowell's office on several occasions. 1933 was full of looming fears for the porters. Uh, there was fear of scandal, fear of blackmail or of social alienation from Harvard and from their friends. 
A decision was about to be made in the summer of 1933 about Kingsley Porter's position in Harvard. On the brink of scandal, the Porters fled to Ireland to wait out the storm. One more thing. 1933 was right in the middle of the Great Depression. And while the Porters had weathered the Wall Street crash, by 1933, some of their investments were in trouble. So as well as worrying about what was happening in Harvard, Kingsley now had financial concerns too. On July the 7th, 1933, the Porters spent the night on Inishbofin Island, where they had built the fisherman's hut. So we're here just outside Porter's house, uh, and I'm looking straight towards the beach. And then to my left are a set of cliffs, the cliffs on the island. So on the 8th of July, 1933, it was the last day that Arthur Kingsley Porter was seen. He met with his wife Lucy here at the house and they decided then to go over and tie up the boats with the local boatman, Owen McGee. Afterwards then Arthur and uh, Lucy were to go to the cliffs and to do some writing. And Arthur said he would go on ahead himself. He gave a pencil and a piece of paper to Lucy and he said, that's just in case you start yourself before me. And he walked off towards the cliffs. Lucy walked back towards uh, the village on the island and that was the last that was seen of Arthur Kingsley Porter. He disappeared. After a period of time, Lucy, she's overcome with kind of an ill feeling that there's something that's amiss, something's not right. And she runs to the, the populated side of the island and she meets Owen McGee and she, and she shouts, have you seen Kingsley? It's recorded that she seemed quite frantic and upset. The two of them search the island high and low. They climb into some of the caves that are along the cliff sides here as well because uh, Kingsley was fond of uh, going in to investigate caves and looking at caves uh, and there was no sign of him. They meet another islander, a man named Pat Call. Kingsley, sir! Kingsley! And they spend the entire day searching the island. Kingsley! Kingsley! And that can say, yeah, being shot and they search from high to low. The entire island is combed, but he's not to be found. That evening, Lucy left the island. She knew that a friend, the author, George Russell, was waiting for her in Kingsley on the mainland. She later wrote about her thoughts as she travelled alone without Kingsley across from the island. Whether it took a longer or a shorter time that night to row in from the island, I do not know. But I did know then, dazed as I was, that it didn't matter. That the passage of time would never again matter to me, now that there was no one to hurry to or to hurry for. We came to the place where the sea is white and you generally steer too much out of your course to avoid the shallows because of the breakers that turn to foam and hissing and roaring roll their spray swiftly into the land. For the first time, I went close to their edge. I had no fear. And I knew, dazed as I was, that never again would I be afraid now that there was no one to shield from danger nor in the case of accident to leave behind. And they eventually they make their way back to the pier at Maharorty. She can see a figure looming on the pier and it's A.E., it's George Russell, the author, and he takes her hand and he brings her on, sh on shore. 
they get into his car and he's to drive her back to Glen Vey. And they sit in silence. And eventually, Russell turns around to her and says, we must report this to the guard, to the civic guards. And Lucy Porter says to him, Kingsley will not return. Kingsley will never return. And he didn't. Nobody was ever found. And of course, with nobody, there are no definite answers which has led to almost 90 years of wondering about the fate of Kingsley Porter. One notion was that he had slipped on the cliffs on one side of the island and had fallen into the sea. Myself and Joseph O'Kelly, the local historian, head off from Kingsley Porter's cottage towards those cliffs, following the path he apparently took that day. These are very gently sloping granite stones. And we discovered that they're not really cliffs at all, at least not what we expected. The cliffs are actually huge sheets of rock sloping gently down to the sea. But you can't fall. How would you fucking drown from How here? would you drown? How would you, you know, your instinct is to get out. And how do you go in there and then are never seen again? You know, when, I, when I'm actually here, I can't understand it. Because I had this idea of cliffs and Well, there are kind of such a thing as, as freak waves and stuff like that, you know, that it does happen. Um, I would find it difficult to think that he might lose his life on, on rocks like this. Kingsley Porter was an excellent swimmer. If he did end up in the water by accident, it looks like he could have got himself out if he wanted to. Not necessarily, says Mickey Whiting. Well, in them days, there was so much back current out there. If any of them cliffs you go back over there, out to there, there'd be no chance of him coming ashore anyhow with the back current going out there anyhow. New York Times, July 9th, 1933. Arthur Kingsley Porter of Elmwood, Cambridge, Massachusetts, an archaeologist, was drowned off Donegal coast yesterday. Mr. Porter was at Inishbon conducting archaeological work with his wife, formerly Lucy Bryant, of New York. This story made the front page of uh, the New York Times. Michael Daly, former editor of the Donegal Democrat newspaper. And it's covered by the Donegal Democrat at the time and it's covered by the Irish press, but I suppose perhaps the Irish papers didn't quite understand the significance of the man they were dealing with, a professor of the fine arts and a multimillionaire. New York Times, July 15th, 1933. The fact that the cliffs over which he passed were wet and slippery and that a swift outgoing tide was running convinced the family that he had missed his footing and fallen into the sea. A week later, they're just saying that there's no trace of Mr J. Kinsley Porter, uh, the American gentleman who resided at Lenvey Castle, and the Irish Press report that Superintendent J.J. Murphy of Dunlow spent all day in the district supervising operations. Those operations included visiting the island to try and work out what had happened. One theory that they had to investigate, of course, was that Kingsley Porter had been killed. The main suspects would be Lucy or one of the islanders. And the islanders didn't like the way the guards dealt with them. Some of them guards, you know, and detectives were, uh, were very unpleasant as well, kind of sharp with the people. Mickey Whiting, who was a child there at the time. They could be a lot nicer. They didn't, uh, it was a big thing to see policemen on the island that time, you know, or, or a detector, you know. Then there was the notion that the guards were in cahoots with the family and helped to sneak the body off the island. Mickey Whiting says this was prompted by something that happened when the guards were getting onto the boat to leave the island. They brought a huge box with them and my grand-uncle asked the detective first idea it was the big box. You know, he was kind of a well ahead of other people like that. He was kind of a, he probably shouldn't ask, but he was for first in the box. He says, he says to my uncle, what well, the way it is, he said, he said, 
It's none of your business what's in box. That's our business. And then after that, Dr McGinley, the surgeon, came to go to work. Dr McGinley was there to conduct an inquest into the death of Arthur Kingsley Porter. That was September 1933. There were three witnesses. Two of the islanders who searched for him, Pat Call and Owen McGee, and the main witness, Kingsley Porter's wife, Lucy. He was accustomed to explore the caves or may have gone down to a sheltered spot amid the cliffs to ride. The tide was going out all the time about the time he disappeared and was coming in when we were searching in the evening. I think that Mr. Porter must have been on top of one of the cliffs and slipped and have fallen into the sea and that his body was carried out to sea. The coroner accepted Lucy's testimony and ruled that her husband had died by accident. But rather than ending any speculation about what happened to Kingsley Porter, the inquest just generated more. Because during the hearing, Lucy's demeanour wasn't that of a grieving widow. She didn't seem to be, as the people were saying, well, that surprised because she seemed to knew, you know, the story. She was seemed to be very detached, very cool, very together in a way, which I suppose nobody would expect for somebody who had just gone out, rode out of a summer's evening with her husband and they've returned on their own and he has disappeared and that's the end of it. But then she was from New England, that sort of Puritan, certainly don't show your emotions in public. So that may have been the reason. The verdict of the inquest was death by misadventure and there was no mention of Arthur Kingsley Porter's bouts of depression. But there was another piece of information to come out of the inquest that intrigued people, and that was the mention of a mystery vessel. It did emerge that a boat left the island at the same time as Kingsley Porter disappeared. This feeds into the most fantastic theories of them all, and it's this, that Arthur and Lucy planned to fake his death and to spirit him away from all his troubles, his wrestling with his sexuality and the imminent scandal at Harvard. Michael Daly of the Donegal Democrat says if Arthur Kingsley Porter ended up in the water off Inish Boffin, his body should have been swept northeastwards. Local expertise and local knowledge of the currents would suggest that it would turn up in Hornhead, and it didn't. But as soon as Michael seems to build up the idea of a fake death, he knocks it down. You can have all sorts of circumstances, and I would be aware of cases where bodies have never been found. Mickey Whiting says the fake death theory is fanciful. There was rumours after that he was to be seen in America and places like that, which is that was story for the press and the people. Like, there was nothing like that at all. The man disappeared and he committed, went over the cliffs, and we knew what happened very well. It was a suicide, Mickey? It definitely was, 100%. You, know, you, you could tell that following the story that definitely it was. I don't see suicide as being something that would even be in the universe of things he would have considered. This is Kingsley Porter's closest living descendant, his great-great-nephew, Scott Arneal. You know, he was someone who could go anywhere he wanted. He didn't have to go back to Cambridge. So I don't believe he jumped off the cliff, certainly. In terms of, you know, slipping and falling or having a boating accident, again, this wasn't, you know, an inland tourist who was near the coast and, you know, slipped on rocks. This is someone who'd been around water his whole life. You know, he grew up with a lot of boating experience, with an understanding of wind and weather and conditions for traveling by water. So to think that there was some sort of accident that involved, you know, falling off the rocks or, 
you know, heading out in a boat in rough seas isn't really something that makes a ton of sense to me. Basically, what I think is he couldn't go back to Cambridge with the scandals and did not want to cause a scandal. And I believe that was a selfless gesture because he could have gone back and faced it. It would have negatively impacted the university and potentially his students. What I believe happened is he chose to leave, and I believe Lucy knew. And I believe if she didn't know right away, then there were letters and there was correspondence thereafter. There was also a trip that Lucy Porter took in 1939 to Italy. She went there one last time to photograph churches and monuments in Italy. And I've often wondered, could this have been an occasion for a final meeting between herself and Kingsley? There's absolutely no proof whatsoever of anything. Sean O'Gaheen of Glenvay Castle is equally sceptical. Yeah, there's plenty of speculation that Kingsley Porter didn't die and that he was seen again in Paris or he got a boat off the island, was never seen again, all that sort of stuff. None of that has really followed up in any way. Kingsley Porter's nephew, Scott Arneal, says that even if he lived, his talent was lost to the world. The tragedy there, again, is, you know, he stopped being able to contribute to, you know, the field that was his passion because he... <laughs> was living somewhere else under an assumed name. And so I think that was probably very hard and lonely. In his will, Kingsley Porter left the mansion in Massachusetts to Harvard University, even though he had been hounded by the president of Harvard for being gay. Curiously, the mansion is now the official residence for the president of Harvard. After Kingsley's death, Lucy continued to visit Glenvay, but within a couple of years, it seemed as if the curse put on the previous landlord wouldn't lift. In the summer of 1936, a friend of her staying at the castle died of a heart attack. Belfast Newsletter, August 1936. Peter Teagan, Professor of Fine Arts, Princeton University, died at Glenvay Castle, County Donegal, where he was a guest of the owner, Mrs. Kingsley Porter of Harvard, USA. And in 1937, her chauffeur, was involved in a fatal accident. Donegal News, July 10th, 1937. The coroner for East Donegal conducted an inquest surrounding the death of a 70-year-old man named John Mitchell of Ballinlecky, who was struck by a motor car. The driver of the car was Mr. Thomas McCann, Glenvay Castle. That was the summer, 1937, that Lucy Kingsley Porter decided to leave Glenvay. And then there's these accounts. Uh, this is... Well, this is a description of the festival that she had in the garden. Before she went, she threw a huge garden party. Sean O'Gaheen of Glenvay Castle. I had gentry and peasants together. Tea was served at five by my staff, my guests and me. Yeah, Mrs Whiteside, who was the housekeeper here, made all the cake. Saturday morning, she made 500 scones. Three of the Protestant clergy came and three Catholic priests. All six were in their tumble-down cars to bring the poorest people. Pat Call from Inishboffin and Owen McGee from the, the, the shore were brought by Canon McDwyer. It was the loveliest party I've ever gave and ever attended. When the sunlit bathed it, I felt as if it were Kingsley's silent approval descending upon us. 
Ta Fultirov and Chugger Clashland Glenvehe, Agasamashagala Horch of Hart or Torres Frigi Clashland. Glenvey Castle ultimately became the property of the Irish people and is now one of Donegal's most popular tourist attractions. Arthur Kingsley Porter was more into these kind of lighter pastel colours and this room reflects um, a lot of his interests. He was a professor of... On Inish Bofinia, the Kingsley Porter's cottage is in ruins. After her husband's disappearance, Lucy never again visited the island. I'm back on the boat from Inish Bofin, back to Maharorty on the Donegal mainland, and I've no idea what happened to Kingsley Porter, if he had an accident or died by suicide. Uh, the legacy he leaves behind, well, we're here, aren't we? We're still talking about him. We're still talking about Lucy. Um, the man is very much still alive in the, in, in the local folklore and in conversations in the sense that the mystery has never been resolved. And would you have been here had Kinsley lived a normal age, lived out his life in Glenvey Castle and has brought you here? Yeah, it's brought me here. It's brought me here all the way from Ballyshannons. <laughs> <laughs> And in Ireland, his own life, a silent, shining flame, for the last time, curved upwards, suddenly to drop like a rocket into the sea. The Lost Millionaire was narrated by Mark McManaman. It was produced by Mark and Ronan Kelly. The actors were Riley Madden-Sia, who read Kingsley Porter, Roseanne Lynch, who read Lucy Porter, and Trina O'Neill, who read various parts. The sound engineer for Roseanne Lynch's readings was Richard Lennon. Lucy Costigan's book is entitled Glenvey Mystery. And for more information, take a look at rte.ie slash one. Until the next time, thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.